We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Psalms. So if you will, grab a Bible. There's some in the back. You can use a fake Bible on your phone. Or you can grab your own Bible. Psalm 132. I just personally like that swish sound. I don't know why, but it's just something wonderful about that. Uh, One of the most or one of the more, I should say, impactful conversations I've ever had in my life was at a TCBY. Okay, some of you don't even know what a TCBY is, all right? Think Dairy Queen, only a lot better, okay? Think uh, Cold Stone, only smoother. I mean, think any ice cream place and then just like magnify it by a multitude of five. All right, that's TCBY, it's frozen yogurt. And I was at a TCBY with a friend, and the two of us had just begun the process of planting a church in Oregon. And what made it really easy to kind of start this process and kind of step out in faith to plant this church is that two churches in Oklahoma said that they'd pay our salaries for five years. So there we were sitting at this TCBY, and he turned to me and said, so if these churches don't pay, right, if they don't send us any money, are, are we going to still plant this church? And like most conversations, right, you start kind of panicking, going like, well, what do you know? Like, are you getting like a weird, eerie feeling or something? And he told me, he's like, no, 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 I haven't heard anything negative. I'm just, I'm just curious, if the money doesn't come, are you in? Are we going to plant this church? So I looked at him and I said, yep, I'm all in. Money or no money, money, we, we're going to do this. Well, like all good stories or hard stories, the money didn't come, all right? I, I should have known, right? Oklahoma had just stolen the supersonics. And now they were breaking this young church planner's heart. Well, the money didn't come. But, but right then, when we found out, when we got that email, he looked at me and I just responded and I said, TCBY, Right? I had made a commitment. I had made a vow. I said, regardless of if the money comes or not, we would do this. We would plant this church. We make these sort of vows all the time, I think, right? I mean, just think about it when you buy a house. If you don't know this, eventually when you buy a house, you sit down and you sign paper, right? And when I mean paper, I mean like in order to buy a house and sign paper, you have to murder five trees, all right? There's like so much paperwork and it is unnerving because you can't read all of it, right? The person's just like, oh, just sign there. No problem. No problem, right? So you just go and you're there for like half an hour signing paper after paper. But ultimately it all boils down to an oath, right? You as the signee are vowing to pay back this loan at an agreed upon price for an agreed upon term, right? It is a vow, an oath, a commitment to repay this money, this loan to buy this house. We have vows all over the place, right? I mean, uh, when you, I'm told, when you become an American citizen, you, you have to take an oath. Doctors, they take an oath, the Hippocratic Oath. When you get married, you, you make vows. You make an oath to the other person. If you stand, if you go and, you know, you're a, you're a witness at a jury, what do you do right before you testify? You make an oath. I promise to tell the 
the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Mothers, I think you do this all the time too, right? I've heard my own wife say this to her kids. Like she makes oaths all the time, vows to, to my kids saying like, I'll always love you. I'll always be there for you and support you. We make these vows all of the time. Actually, when you become a member of a church, historically speaking, and even in our church, you make a vow. You make a commitment. That, that's what our church covenant is. It's a, it's a sort of commitment to say, we want to uphold each other to biblical Christianity. Now, th- th- though vows, I think, are pretty common, we, we make them sort of all the time. So often it's hard to fulfill our vows, isn't it? We say one thing. We say, yeah, I'm going to plant this church or I'm going to be faithful in my marriage vows. I'm going to repay back this loan. We make these sort of vows, but so often it's hard to fulfill our vows. We even have good intentions often, but sometimes even with good intentions, we fail to fulfill our many vows. We need a better vow. We need a better oath. And that's what we're going to find out in our psalm today. We're sort of coming to an end in this collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, to which we've been studying uh, this past few months. These were a collection of psalms intentionally arranged as psalms to be sung, sort of like a, a hymn book, by pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem at various times during the year for various feasts. They were sort of to put music or a discipleship manual for the pilgrim. And this morning, the big idea, and it'll be behind me, the big idea is simply this. That the most important thing to remember is not the vows that we make to God. Actually, the most important thing to remember is the vows God makes to his people. Let me read the text. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. 
For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it from his de- for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe the salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him... His crown will shine. I don't know if you noticed, but this is, if you just look at it, this is like the longest by far psalm in this collection of psalms. Almost double. And in many ways, it's, it's, it's important that when you see those sort of things, or when you're like reading narrative and all of a sudden you see a, some poetry, like to just slow down because something theologically profound is going on here. And really, the, the sort of structure of this text, it's, it's really clear. You have a oath or a vow, a promise that David makes to God in verses 1 to 10. And then in verse 11 to 18, you have God's oath or vow to David. That, that's how this is structured. And this also is kind of mirrored because David's oath or promise to God, it's, it's twofold. There's, there's two parts to it. But that's also true of God's sort of oath or promise that he makes to David. It also is twofold. So first, let's, let's look at this, this oath, this promise that David makes. Verse 1, right? Right there, David is enduring hardship, verse 1. Now, I don't think that this hardship has to do with David's life. It's not like this hardship is attached to Goliath or attached to those seasons in which he was running from Saul. This hardship has to do with the sort of inner turmoil going on in his life because of this vow that he makes to God. And then we see that it says, verse 2, he swore to the Lord this vow to the mighty one of Jacob. Now, that, that's interesting. You, you see that twice, right? This language, uh, uh, this characteristic, this description of God described as the mighty one of Jacob. Well, I think Jacob, the, the, the character in, in Genesis, perfectly sort of is the, the hero for the moment, right? Jacob was an underdog story. And so he cries out to the mighty one, the powerful one, the, the strong one of Jacob. Because of, because of God's strength, Jacob succeeded. And so he, he appeals and he describes God as the mighty one of Jacob. And then he says, verse 3, I'm not going to sleep until I accomplish this vow. Now, I'm going to explain what this vow is in a moment, but, but just look there. He's basically saying, I'm going to work the, the night shift. I'm not going to blink. David's saying, I'm not going to have any sort of spiritual or physical slothfulness, right? I'm I'm not going to be lazy about this vow. I'm going to do everything. I'm I'm not going to give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. I'm not going to rest until I accomplish this vow that I promised that I would do for God. Now, what what is this vow? Well, again, there's two parts of it. In verse 1 to 5, the vow seems to be connected to David's vow to God in 1 Samuel 7 that he would build God a house. 
Remember that story? He, he's talking to Nathan and he's, he's looking around. David had just made himself a palace, a house, and it's gorgeous. And he's saying, God, how is it that I can have this beautiful house, this glorious palace, and you're homeless? I mean, yes, there was a tabernacle. And, and the tabernacle was expensive. It was, it was made of wood and gold. It was, it was glorious. But, but David has this secure home, this palace. And he's looking around. And God's living in a double wide. And so he, he, he tells David, I, I, I promise that I'm going to build a temple, a house, a palace for God himself. And Nathan himself responds to him and says, that's a good desire. That's good zeal. That's the particular vow we see in verses one through five, the, the, the building of the house of God, the building of the temple. But then in verse 6, there's another sort of promise and vow. And it's, it's very much connected, but it's nuanced. And we just got to keep reading, right? Verse 6, behold, we heard it. Uh, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Now, what is it? Just keep reading. What is it that was found in Ephrathah? What was it that was found in the field of Jar? Let us go to the house. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. What, what is the footstool theologically, symbolically in the Old Testament? Verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And if you read verses 9 and 10, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The it is the ark. Many of you might remember that before, uh, during David's time, the ark was captured by the Philistines. You, you might remember this story. It, it, it's one of those like intense, glorious, powerful moments, right? The Philistines take the ark and they put it sort of in a cave next to their god, uh, an idol of their god, Dagon, right? And it's a scene, right? And Dagon's like standing there, proud. And eventually, Dagon falls and crumbles like laying prostrate. Like it's that like brave heart text, right? Like don't mess with God. And so eventually, right, the, the ark was recaptured by the Israelites. But for 20 years, it rested in Kiriath-Jerim, kind of on the outskirts of Israel. And Kiriath-Jerim has well, it has other names, right? Like, other cities have other nicknames. Like, we know this. Like, there's all these cities in, in America, and they have nicknames. Like, like Portland, right? Portland's not just named Portland. It's also named Bridge City. Why? Because there's a lot of bridges. It's also called the Weird City. Why? Because there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in Portland, right? Okay, well, Kiriath Jerim had... Some nicknames. It, it, it had some other names. Ephrathah and the field of Jar. And for 20 years, the ark is resting in Kiriath Jerim. And David says, I'm going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Or I'm going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. That was his vow. So it wasn't just to build the temples. Also that he was going to reconnect the ark with the tabernacle. And then the temple. He was going to bring the ark after 20 years in Kiriath-Jerim, he was going to bring it to Jerusalem. Now, what is the ark? 
Well, the ark was God's tangible manifest presence among his people. God is omnipresent, right? God is present everywhere. You can't like run from God's presence. And yet the the ark was God's tangible kind of intimate personal presence among his people. And as such, the ark must kind of symbolically be in the midst of the people because God should be the center of God's people. For 20 years, 20 years, the ark is on the outskirts of God's people, forgotten. The people didn't even realize, I'm guessing, many of them, where it even was. God's tangible presence in the midst of his people, and for 20 years, it's, it's just on the outskirts of God's people. I mean, in many ways, could, could there be a greater indictment of the sin of God's people right there, that God wasn't even in the midst of their, of their community, and they seem to care very little. 20 years, two decades. Recently, Kyle Brashears wrote a book, and he wrote a book with an interesting title. It just came out, actually, called Apathyism. Okay? You've all heard of atheism, which is the, the idea that, that there is no God. You've heard of agnosticism, which says, like, well, no one can really know if God does or does not exist. Well, apatheism is the idea of, I don't really care about the religious questions in life. I'm just apathetic towards them. Now, personally, we've all had those encounters with people who, who in, we're interested in spiritual things or religious things, and we want to talk. Like, personally, I don't know if I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I'd rather be screamed at by an atheist than just have a shrug of the shoulders where someone who just doesn't even care about the questions, the big questions of life, worldview questions, religious questions. And so, Brashears writes this, this book about how to engage in people who are just apathetic, who, who sort of have a, a worldview of apathyism, he calls it which is a sort of deficit of interest, according to him, in religious matters altogether. It's a sort of shrug of the shoulders to the big questions of life. Uh, at least for me, coming into last year when, when you know, COVID was happening and, and, and uh, you know, th- there was a lot of fear going on, I, I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be great. A lot of people are going to be like asking the sort of existential questions in life. People are going to be asking those big questions like what happens when I die? What's the meaning of life? And yet it almost seems as though as a result of this last year, people are just even more apathetic to those questions. Now, we know that this apathyism It sort of plagues our world. At points, I'm guessing it sort of mans us in the same way that anything that we like, when you want to talk about it and people are bored with it, 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 it's frustrating. We know that sort of apathyism is is frustrating to evangelism, but, but apathyism can plague a church too. That's what we see here in our text. For 20 years, they're apathetic to the reality that the ark is not in the center of God's people. God's visible, tangible, manifest present is just forgotten. 
He was irrelevant. And maybe for good reason. I mean, just think of all the things that were happening in David's day. Think of all the political turmoil in David's day. Think of all the economic things. Think of all the things that were going on about, like, you know, establishing roots there. You know, there was famine. Enemies surrounding them. All of these fears. But slowly, God was pushed to the outskirts of their lives. God was quietly pushed to the barriers of the lives of God's people. Now, we look at this and we tend to think, how in the world could they not see that? How in the world could they experience that? And I guess I would ask you, if you showed up to church on a Sunday and God himself didn't show up, would you notice any difference? If God just decided not to show up, would your singing be any different? Would the preaching be any different? Would the interactions and the conversations be any different if God himself never showed up. I think the scariest question is, how long until we'd even know that? I mean, so often, right, we read in the Old Testament and also in the New, we read of Israel's sins of idolatry. We read of God's people doing that which was forbidden. But here's the scariest moment, I think, in God's people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The scariest moments aren't when people actively shun God or run from God. It's when they've woken up maybe a month or six months or a year and they've realized God's not really even at the center of their lives anymore. And they can't even remember when it all happened. There was just a slow, subtle drift away from God. Well, David wants nothing of that. And so David vows, I'm going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And you see that in 2 Samuel 6, right? It was a sort of rocky road, if you know that story. But that's his zeal. That's his passion. That's his heart. His heart was to put God's presence back into God's people's lives. He he wants to build a temple, a house for God, and then bring the ark back to God. He he just, he he wants God to be worshipped permanently, preeminently. That's why you see in verse 9, right, he he says uh, he, he desires priests to be righteous in their worship, right? He doesn't want, you know, you know, apathetic worship. He wants priests in and of himself, right, to be righteous. He wants praise and joy to just be manifest in the saints. Shouts of joy. He wants to stir God's people's affections. He wants them to have joy. I think all of us at points sometimes get in a sort of spiritual rut, don't we? Sometimes apathy can come to us all. It's not just out there. Apathy is something that we can all experience from time to time. But 
Apathy comes to us always in the same form. It always comes to us slowly. It builds over time. Apathy is sort of like a virus. It replicates slowly in the hearts and souls of men and women, and it slowly and subtly squeezes out joy and praise and zeal and fervor for Jesus Christ. And David saw this. And he wants to get the zeal back. So how do you get it back? Well, David makes a vow to God to say, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to build a house to God and I'm going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But David only fulfills one of those, doesn't he? David doesn't fill both of these promises and vows. The ark makes its way to Jerusalem, but David never builds the temple, does he? It was David's son. So if we want to know how to have this sort of praise and zeal and to worship God in a manner in which is kind of illustrative of David, we got to keep reading because we need a better vow than the vows we make, right? Look at verse 11. Verse 1 to 10, David makes a vow to God. Now, verse 11, God makes a vow back to David, which if you just step back and think, is pretty amazing. The Lord swore an oath, swore to David, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. I mean, just pause there for a second. The Lord made a promise to David. It is sure. It is rock solid. It will not fade. He will not turn back from it. It's like a double emphasis here. When God speaks, when God's word goes out, when God promises something, it will happen. He binds himself to it. It's a part of his character. And here he says, I have made a promise now to you and I will do it. I won't turn back from doing that which I am about to vow to you. Now, what is that promise? Well, Keep reading. It says, the, the promise is, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now, this again goes back to Second Samuel 7. Remember, David says, I'm going to build you a house. A really good desire. David is zealous to worship God, to glorify and honor him. It's a good desire. And God responds to him and says, you want to build me a house? No. I'm going to build you a household. You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a dynasty. That was the promise that God gives in 2 Samuel 7. That it's a promise that someone would rule forever from the line of David. Now, we know that David didn't build the house. It was David's son, Solomon, who built the house. David had that good desire, but his desire, it wasn't big enough. Isn't this how God always works in our lives? We think, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this great thing, this awesome thing. 
and we, we put our energy behind it. And so often God comes to us and says, you just have too small a view. You're not seeing the big picture here. We have these desires that we say, God, I'm going to do this for you. And we vow ourselves to do it. And God says, that's too small a thing. For, for three years, I worked at a, and did everything in my power to uh, work at a Christian university in resident life. I don't know why, but I just wanted to do that. Probably because I became a Christian in college. I had a passion for it. And so I had a zeal to make Christ known at a Christian college. And so I got a graduate degree, worked at a Christian college for free. I did everything. And I only got, as a result of this, rejection letter after rejection letter. And I remember thinking like, God, I, I, this is a good desire to make you known at a Christian college. So often we just think that in our discouragement, we're like, what are you doing, God? I had this, this vow to do something. And God says, you don't understand. I've got something better for you. Took me multiple years to realize what that better was. That, that, that better was sending my wife and me and my daughter to live in a fraternity, to, to live amongst a hundred men at a college, not a Christian college, but a college. Coincidentally, not any fraternity, but the very fraternity my wife's father was in and in the 70s was praying for a revival in that same fraternity. God had been working for 50 years in a fraternity saying, I got a plan. You think it's just this and it's way bigger than that. David says, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, "You, I'm doing something so much bigger. Your son has to build it. And we might say, why does David's son have to build this temple? It's because David could never build the temple because David's ultimate son had to always build the temple. And that's what we get in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is David's greater son. Isaiah calls him that. When we get to the New Testament, he's described as that. Jesus is David's greater son. Son, who builds the temple. How? Not with a hammer, not with nails. He builds the temple by his own life. He's enthroned on a cross. He's crowned with thorns. David just thought of this as a a sort of dynasty, Oh yeah, I'm, uh, uh, someone's going to rule f- from my lineage. And that happened for 400 years. David had too small a view. And God was doing something much greater. Sometimes we can be so zealous to say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the 1040 window. I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve that. I'm going to... And we don't realize that God has... So often something so much greater. And ultimately that greater thing is God's own son. You see the promise there in 2 Samuel 7 isn't just a dynasty. It's the promise of Jesus Christ himself. It's the promise of forgiveness. It's the promise of peace. You see the temple was a way in which we could be forgiven by God. It was where we found peace with God. But it was always provisional. It was always pointing forward. Ultimately, it was pointing to Jesus Christ himself. 
We get forgiveness. We get peace. We get salvation. All those things that are coming up in our text. And we get it through the ultimate anointed one, Jesus Christ. See, David wants desperately God's presence in the heart of God's people, but that can only happen ultimately through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's one more vow and oath that's kind of, or there's one more vow and oath that God gives that's set before in verses uh, 11 and 12, it's, it, it, you know, Jesus, his coming, that's in view there. The fulfillment of Second Samuel 7 is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But then starting in verse 13, there's something else held out to us. Look at this. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Verses 13 and 18, it's a picture of a reality that's not yet fulfilled. There is an eschatological and a future yet fulfillment of verses 13 and 18, right? Look at the description, right? It's a, it's a description of rest. I'm looking around or I, maybe I'm just projecting my own restlessness, but, but we're not experiencing ultimate rest or full rest. Most of us aren't even experiencing partial rest. We have provisions, but, but do we have provisions in abundance? Right? We have organizations like World Vision and others that are seeking to, to feed poor and do that stuff, but, but there are still some who go hungry. We have joy, but how often are you discouraged and sad? There are enemies, and those enemies, verse 18, so often are not shamed. They're gleeful in their antagonism of God and his church. You see, the picture of verse 13, sort of to the end, uh, is one of abundance, right? No poor, no hungry, endless joy, no sadness, no enemies. It's a picture of the future. And at the center of that, at the center of that future reality is Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw him in the text, but he is all over this text, right? Verse 17, you have this horn to sprout from David. The, the horn in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a representation of strength, right? I mean, just, just think of animals, right? And, and antlers and horns, right? The, the bigger the horns, the stronger they are, right? So, this strength will be sprouted from David, from David's line. And we've got this imagery of lamp, that this one will, this coming anointed one, this coming king is going to be the light of the world. He's going to bring clarity to the world. He's going to have a crown, verse 18. He's going to shine. 
It's going to make his man, his presence known. At the heart of even this future reality is Jesus Christ. So just, just think about this, how this kind of all fits together, right? Just think about the Old Testament pilgrim here, right? This psalm, it's an old psalm, okay? But it was certainly read during and after the exile. There's a reason why this is placed in this Pilgrim Psalms and it comes to the, to the kind of uh, the fifth book of the Psalter, all right? It comes towards the end of the, the Psalm hymnal. And, and the reason is, just think about it. These pilgrims are, are going to Jerusalem and what don't they have in Jerusalem right now? They have no Davidic king sitting on the throne. For 400 years they did, but no longer. And they're singing this. They're singing this psalm with no Davidic king. How in the world can they sing this? There's no king. There's no ark. They sing it in faith. They sing it in sort of eschatologically. These Old Testament pilgrims are singing it, awaiting the future Messiah and the fulfillment of this scripture is in Jesus Christ. So that's their framework. But then we also have verse 13 and 18 too. That's a future reality we don't see right now. And so we are in the same position as the pilgrim. We are too awaiting a future reality that we only see in part. And so the, the application for, for, for the, you know, the fourth century pilgrim, the, the, the application for the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint really is the same, which is, you got to have faith. Faith in God's promises. Faith that, that, that though we make these vows, though we make these promises, we need a better promise maker, promise keeper. We need to have faith, to walk by faith. This psalm, it's all about faith. We all know the experience of, you know, reading the Bible and you read the Bible with these wonderful, glorious, big promises. And then you look at the world, you look at your life and you think, I don't know how that could be true. And so we doubt. Does God love me when I can't even love myself? Will God comfort me when I don't feel comforted right now? Will God never leave me or forsake me when so many people have left me and forsaken me? Will God wipe away my tears when all I have are laments? We, we have these promises these assurances held out by the gospel, held out by God himself, and we too must take those promises. And though all of us would say, yes, we know, right? Verse 11, they are sure God's not going to turn back. God has wrapped up his promises in his own character. We know that intellectually, but so often in our lives, it's so hard to take those promises and live into them. But the way you do that is 
with faith. It's with faith, and that's what God's people did. They, they believed even when it looked like there was no future hope for the coming Davidic king, that all of that promise would end at the exile. And God says, keep singing, keep shouting, keep clinging in faith. The coming king will arrive. And he did. I mean, John the Baptist himself quotes our psalm when Jesus comes on the scene. He says, the horn of salvation, he's here. He's right over there. We too are pilgrims that walk by faith. You know, these pilgrims, they, they had a hard life, I'm guessing. And yet even in the midst of this, even as David was fighting back apathy in God's people, notice that his, his joy was not tethered to his own vow. I mean, I remember just going back, I, I remember on those hard days when the whole TCBY thing, my, my own personal oath, it didn't sustain me. If that's the only oath that I had to sustain me as a young, idiotic, Naive church planter, I'm telling you, that would not have been enough. We need a greater oath, a greater vow. And at the center of that oath is God himself. But then one more thing, at the center of that oath is Jesus Christ. Four times David shows up in the psalm. And each time we're not to just see David, we're supposed to kind of squint for a second, right? like one of those magic eyes because glimmering behind David, behind David's favor, verse one, behind David as the anointed, joy-filled servant of God, verse 10, David who, behind David, we're supposed to see Jesus Christ himself. He's the ultimate oath giver. He roots us in the promise that he will fulfill. He has come. He's going to come again. That there's so much turmoil in all of our lives and hardship. We need, we need not just our vows. We need not just to gut it out. We need a God who died for us by sending, we need a God who sent his own son to die for us, to be precise who's going to come back, who's going to make everything new. And we need a reminder to remember David, who walked by faith, who sung a hymn of faith, even in a world that was preaching doubt. So wherever you're at, put your faith in Jesus. For the first time, for the thousandth time, center your life on Jesus. And whatever comes, whatever turmoil, trial, temptation, whatever storm comes, you'll have a refuge for that storm. Let's pray. Lord, 
we stand amazed at how you've woven your story into all of our lives. We, we, we read your word of, of your mighty acts, of all the things that you've done in this world, and there's part of us that just cannot believe your, your, your wise, sovereign, providential working in this world. There's so many things going on that, that breeds so much doubt in all of our lives. Lord, we pray that we would not stare ultimately at our doubts, but that we would stare at your son. A reminder that he is who he says he is, that he accomplished what he set out to accomplish, and he will return to remake all things. We long for that, for the day when all of the pilgrims, old and new, come together in joy and feast with one another, with your son at the center. We long for that day. We pray all of that in his name. Amen.